0: If you'd like, you can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter four, excuse me, Mark chapter eight. It's on page 844 in your pew Bible. We'll be focused in particular, Mark chapter eight, verse 31 on down to verse, really verse 37. And uh, let me pray for us as we turn to scripture. Lord, we, we really would like you to speak And we know you do through your word, and we'd really like to be able to hear. And we ask that your spirit would now come and open our minds and our hearts so that we, unlike Peter in this passage, that we would set our mind on the things of God rather than setting them on the things of man. That's what we want to happen now, Lord. So please help us. We pray this in your name. Amen. The um, walk from Bethsaida, which is a, a little town on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee, the walk from Bethsaida to the villages of Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles. And Jesus is taking that walk during this passage and he turns to his disciples and he asks them a question that's been hanging over the first seven chapters of Mark's Gospel. Who do people say that I am? They respond in verse 28, some people say you're John the Baptist, others say that you're Elijah, and others Say you're some prophet. And then Jesus, he pushes the question home. He makes it personal. But who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Christ. Now, if if you're reading the gospel for the first time, you might think it's about to end. Like this is the summit. I mean, this is what we've been waiting for, that the disciples would understand who Jesus is. And they seem to get it, you're the Christ. Christ, it comes from the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one, which means king. Peter's saying, you're the king. And not just any king, since Peter was a little boy, he would have been taught from the the scriptures of Israel that a a great person would come, a Messiah, a son of man, sometimes he was called. And he would have a great everlasting kingdom. Here's how the prophet Daniel put it. This is what Peter would have been thinking. This is Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples... All nations and all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The disciples would have felt that they were on the cusp of history. The Christ will go up to Jerusalem. He will vanquish Israel's enemies and will establish a throne, Israel's throne, and it will be forever and it will be glorious. But like the, like the student who thinks he's mastered mathematics because he's gotten through algebra, but is suddenly thrown into calculus and in a fog, the disciples soon find that though they think they understand the Christ, they don't. And Jesus, speaking boldly now, verse 32, it says he said this, Plainly. Remember, he's been speaking in parables. Now he's speaking plainly. The word could also be translated boldly, crystal clear, loud. Jesus explodes their assumptions about the Christ, the Son of Man. Verse 31. The Son of Man, this figure foretold from the Daniel prophecy, the Son of Man, he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. This is like the the coach saying, guys, we're almost there. We've made it to the championship game. Now we're going to go up there. We're going to let them score five touchdowns on us. What? Not only is this unexpected, it doesn't make any sense. A suffering Christ, a rejected Messiah, A dead king? There was a lot of speculation and a lot of thinking about the Messiah in the days of Jesus. But nobody was connecting these two ideas. A glorious Messiah exacting his reign and a Messiah that dies. The two things are not compatible. And so the disciples, they might have thought the Messiah could get scratched up in a battle perhaps. But not suffer many things, certainly not be rejected by Israel's own leaders, and definitely not die. So Peter, he's concerned about this, especially because Jesus is teaching so plainly that Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him. And the word that's translated rebuke, it's a word that's used elsewhere in Mark's gospel for rebuking a demon. It's very, very strong. Stop it. Don't talk this way. Peter is actually no longer being a disciple right now. He's not behind Jesus. He walks ahead of him and pulls him aside. He's actually trying to lead him. And Jesus turns and he looks at the rest of the disciples still following him. And he says one of the strongest things in any of the Gospels. Verse 33, get behind me, Satan. Jesus is equating resistance to his suffering with satanic designs. That's pretty intense. This is the turning point of Mark's Gospel. And it's a hinge that turns, not just on recognizing that Jesus is the Christ, but recognizing something completely unexpected about him. He's a crucified Christ. This is such an important theme That Jesus will predict this, that he's going to die, three times in short order. Mark 8.31, Mark 9.31, Mark 10.34. You can look them up. Bang, bang, bang. He keeps saying it before they get to Jerusalem. I am going up there to die. Now, to, to grasp the seriousness of this, of this teaching, it says Jesus is teaching them this. To grasp the seriousness of it, we need to notice what is the most important word in our passage. It's in verse 31, and it's the word must. Verse 31, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Jesus doesn't say the Son of Man may suffer. He doesn't say... The Son of Man is willing, should it come to that, to suffer for you. He doesn't say the Son of Man will suffer. He says the Son of Man must suffer. It's a word that carries the sense of necessity. This is utterly necessary. If this doesn't happen, the whole house of cards comes down. So we need to ask why this is so. I mean, if you just think back to what we've been talking about in our sermon series on Mark, we said at the very outset that Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God. And so far in the first eight chapters, hasn't he done enough to show us he can bring the kingdom? Isn't his power enough? He's been casting out demons and healing every disease that's brought to him. Why can't he just go on doing that, right? Heal all your sicknesses, cast out all the demons. Why why can't he just do that? And isn't his wisdom enough? He's been teaching with such authority, with such profundity, people have been amazed. Would it not be enough for Jesus just to continue to give us this wise teaching? Here's the answer to all your questions. This is what you need to do to bring about the kingdom on earth. I'll give you all the tips. Here's the way to do your politics, here it is. Wouldn't that be enough? Or or is his example not enough? I mean, he's already given us an example of radical love. He's loved across pretty much every boundary he could find. Men to women, rich to poor. He's loved sinners. As a Jew, he's even loved Gentiles. So if what you need is an example to inspire you so that you can love the other, you don't need this guy to die for you to do that. Just read the first seven chapters, get inspired. How, and you've gotta wonder this, we're, we're getting like right to the center of Christianity. How is it the case that him dying is going to in any way make things better? Why is it necessary for Jesus to suffer and die? This is the fundamental question our passage sets in front of us. And addressing it sort of pushes us out into the deep. It's like we're out of the shallows of world religions right now, about morality and laws to follow, and we're just thrust out into the deep. God's gonna die. What is that all about? And I think there's a lot of mystery here and I want to do three soundings in this deep ocean. I wish to send down three soundings in this passage and try to ask why do you have to die Jesus? Why is it necessary? And we'll see three soundings that bring up three little bits of information. Something to do with the debt, something to do with the curse and something to do with love. So the first reason Christ must die, is to pay a debt. We see this idea in verse 37. In the second half of our section, Jesus, and we're going to return to this next week, by the way, we'll be in the same passage. Jesus begins to teach the disciples that there's a form of discipleship that's a response to a Messiah that dies, right? He's talking about the cost of discipleship. But in verse 37, he says something kind of strange that I I think there's an insight here for us. He says in verse 37, what can a man give in return for his soul? It's a strange statement, but it unlocks one of the reasons he has to die for us. In this this statement, Jesus is actually borrowing language from the marketplace. You You could render this, what can a man give in exchange for or as a payment for his life? Like if you were trying to buy something, you know, with a car dealer, and you're like, what do I got to pay for this? Jesus is saying, how much would your life cost if you wanted to buy it? And the word that we read as soul there is the word psyche. We get psychology from it. Jesus is saying here, For your life, the depths of it, all of it, the breadth of it, how far it stretches out into eternity, all your hopes and dreams. What's the price tag? What would you have to give to get it? Now, you may be asking, I never knew I lost it. I have my life. Thank you very much. I wake up every morning. It's mine. I do with it what I want. I don't need to buy it from anybody. What is Jesus talking about? He's suggesting that your life is some great debt that you need to buy back. Well, to see what's going on here, we have to remember a few things about how right and wrong function. It's a little complicated. It'll make sense. How right and wrong function and what you have to do in a world to make a wrong right. Now, we believe in right and wrong. We believe in justice. And we believe when something's done wrong that we'd like to make it right. You know, everybody believes that. And sometimes you got to pay a cost to make something right. So if, if, if you run into my car and do $1,000 worth of damage, you've done something wrong. There's a wrong. And there's two ways it can be made right. One way would be you give me $1,000 and I can fix it. That makes the wrong right. But that costs you $1,000. You've got to pay to make that right. Or I could forgive you. You don't have to give me a thousand bucks, but then I have to pay a thousand dollars to fix my car. So to make it right, I still have to pay. Someone has to pay. This is the logic of the universe. To make a wrong right, someone has to pay. Now imagine instead of wrecking my car, you wreck my life. You lie about me. You defame me. I lose my job. I lose my reputation. I can't work. I get depressed. I become a mess. Imagine that's what you do to me. Well now you've done a wrong to me, but how would you pay for it? Like could you give me $1,000, would that make up for it? Like what could you pay to make right that wrong? And you could go a little deeper now to say what if it's the case as the Bible teaches that we have actually, all of us, we've in a sense run into, wrecked God. We've defamed his reputation. So all over the world now people think God's pathetic. It's a lot worse than wrecking one man's reputation. And what if it is that we've broken his stuff you know, his cars are his image bearers. We've hurt them. And, and even if you don't feel this, what if it's the case that your life is one huge, gaping debt? Like, Can you imagine if you really did wreck someone's life? You did something horrible. Maybe you did do something horrible. I don't know all of you. And you're sitting there thinking, I know I can't make up for it. And he's right. I walk around. I got this debt. I'm one great, unsolvable, unredeemable debt. This is what Jesus means when he says, what could you give to pay for your life? He's saying, what what could you pay to get back your innocence? What could you pay to get back all the years that have been wasted? What could you pay to get back the wrongs that you did so you could truly forever make them right? And the answer is simply Jesus rhetorical, nothing. The psalmist says it in Psalm 47. Psalm 47, excuse me, Psalm 49, verse 7 through 9. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. The Bible says that human beings are one huge bad debt. And we know it, even when we act like we don't know it. And at the end of life, we'll stand before God and we'll have to make a payment, give an account for our lives. And there's nothing we can do, unless God decides to absorb the cost. Remember the analogy from the car. You don't give me a thousand bucks, but I could choose to spend my own $1,000 to fix the car and forgive you. But I have to pay the cost then for what you did. This is what we're gonna see that God does in Jesus. Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the son of man came, notice son of man language again, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's written on the back of your sermon guidebook. Well, that word ransom, give his life as a ransom, it's another word taken from the marketplace. It's similar to the word in the Bible, redeem. And it comes from this idea in the marketplace that you could go buy, you could even buy a slave their freedom in the marketplace. You could ransom them. And so Jesus is saying, I have come to pay the cost of giving you your innocent Pure, good, clean conscience, gonna be alive forever, friend of God, life back. Now, how does Jesus do this? How's he gonna do this? Can he just give a bunch of treasures from heaven? No. Here's what it says in Ephesians 1:7. In him we have redemption. Think of the marketplace, ransom, buyback. In him we have redemption. How? through his blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God's riches that he brings to pay pay for you, it's the blood of his son. It's his son's psyche, his son's life in the place of yours. So there's our first answer. Why does Jesus have to die? Because all you have is a bad debt. And he is determined to pay it. That's the first reason. There's a second reason. And here we move from debt to curse. It just gets worse. Now, the word curse doesn't appear anywhere in our passage. But there's a cursed figure in it. Do you see him? He's in verse 32, Jesus all of a sudden brings Satan into the equation, which is strange. He's not saying, when he says get behind me Satan to Peter, he's not saying that Peter is Satan. What he's saying is that Peter's mindset is satanic, meaning it's aligned with Satan's mindset, which means, this is very strange, follow me here, Satan doesn't want Jesus to suffer any more than Peter does. Do you remember when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness? It happens at the beginning of the Gospels. Mark, Matthew, Luke, they all tell us about it. And Luke and Matthew give us a lot of details. Jesus fasts for 40 days. This is in Mark 4 and Luke 4. He fasts for 40 days. Satan comes to him to tempt him. Now, what you'll see here is all Satan's temptations are based on Jesus getting to avoid pain and choose a path of pleasure. So Jesus is super hungry. Satan comes and he says, hey, turn these stones into bread. You don't have to be hungry, you're the son of God. Jesus won't do it. And then Satan says, hey, let's get up on the temple, throw yourself off because it's prophesied in a Psalm that angels will catch you so you don't strike your foot upon a stone. You won't get hurt, Jesus says no. Jesus is probably thinking later on, the shepherd will be struck. And that will be me. Then, even more strangely, this is recorded in Luke 4, 5 through 7, the third temptation, says the devil took Jesus up and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment's time. That includes America, all the kingdoms of the world, or whatever whatever kingdom you're from. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he says to you, I will give all this authority, and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will if you then will worship me it will all be yours Satan, you see what he's saying to Jesus you came to set up God's kingdom you wanted all the I'll give all these things to you right now and you don't have to go to the cross pain free you just have to worship me Satan Satan loves churches that no longer believe in the depths of the atonement. He loves churches that just talk about Jesus' moral teachings, that he's a nice guy, that he came to give you a couple blessings. He's fine with churches that just do stuff like that. He doesn't want churches that understand the cross because he doesn't want Jesus to suffer. Now, let me tell you why. In this last temptation I read for you, Satan says something that's utterly, like it'll bulldoze you if you believe it. I believe it's true because it's in the Bible and also because I live in the world. Satan says, he goes, he shows Jesus all the kingdoms, including North America, United States of America. And he says, to you, I will give all this authority and all this glory for it's been delivered to me and I give it to whoever I want. Do you believe that's true? I mean, the Bible is saying that somehow There are forces beyond physics and politics and cultures. There's forces back there that are actually deeply influencing, even controlling things. And we're not as free as we think. Now, the the Bible teaches that um, we are under a curse. When Adam and Eve turn away from God, God curses the ground. And as the Bible unfolds, we begin to realize that that when, when human beings turn away from God, they, they turn away from God's lordship. I don't need to have a Lord, thank you very much. I'll run my own life. But rather than turning into freedom, they turn into a booby trap, right into another lordship. And now they're under the lordship of Satan. At least that's how I read this passage. So you read things in the Bible like this. Paul says to us autonomous modern people, Romans six twenty, that we're slaves to sin. Jesus says anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Just try to stop sinning the next week. See if you can do it. And then determine in your journal, am I free to not sin? But you've got to really understand what sinning is. Then Paul tells us, not that just we're slaves to sin, in Romans 5 verse 14, Paul says that death reigns over us. A literal translation would be death has been kinged. So, what's one of you with your life that you hold in your hands can take that life up against death and win? Death runs the show, friends. Nobody beats death. We are under the reign of death. And then the Bible goes on to explain that somehow these dark forces, evil, Satan, and his minions, have these influences going on in cultures. So, so. Let me just read you this in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3. And I'll pause to point some things out. This is is pretty interesting. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. Now notice, following the course of this world. Following? I thought we were leaders, Paul. Following the prince of the power of the air. What? What? The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. People who are disobeying God are being influenced by a spirit. Verse three, we all once lived this way. And he goes on to say, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Paul's basically picturing a person, not as an autonomous free person, but in this vortex with all these forces, operating without and pulling on desires within leading the person by the nose, the Bible says we're under a curse. This is why the world just doesn't get better. I mean, we're, we're, we're as smart as we've ever been. I mean, we gotta be, right? I mean, you all have the Encyclopedia Britannica in your pocket. Like we had to buy it and put it on a shelf when I was growing up. We have unbelievable technology, unbelievable medicine, and you still have Russia and Ukraine. Right? It's why? We're under a curse. Now, I think modern people resist any idea that powers other than the free will determine us and control us. But if you just think for a minute, consider all the modern ideas that assume this very same thing. Very smart modern people write about genetic determinism. How do our genes and our biology dictate our temperament? Make us do things. Very smart people write about social or environmental determinism. The systems around us, they force us to think and feel and act in a certain way. It's the system's fault. Or think about the popular word that's been used in the last few years. I know it's a controversial word. Don't get sidetracked. It's the word woke. Think about the assumption in that word. It comes from the word wake. Like the assumption is that people are asleep and they don't know it and they need to be woken up. Well, what if we are asleep to a million spiritual realities that are going on all around us and we have no idea? I don't think this is a crazy idea at all, that in a sense, as one theologian writes, all through the world sin takes possession of us as power and destiny. There is no such thing as human autonomy. One is never simply oneself, but always the projection of an all-encompassing power. Notice, the copy and image of whichever Lord has commandeered one for service. Our culture is producing image bearers. There's a modern woman. There's a modern man made in my image. So how do we get free from this? This is a complex power that we can't shake off on our own. Again, on the cross, and this is a bit of a mystery how this happens, but some sort of de- decisive battle is fought where God defeats and breaks the spell. Paul says in Colossians that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, o- triumphing over them in the- on the cross or in Christ. What about this curse we're under? In Galatians 3.13, we read, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So an analogy might be, like, what's happening on the cross? If you could think about this curse almost like a virus that we have, and if you're in the food industry or or, or in the field of livestock and and you have a virus going through your herd, one of the things you may need to do is isolate some of the animals who have the virus before it spreads and, and let them die. And when a virus kills its host, if it hasn't spread, the virus commits suicide right? It like, if it doesn't have a host, it dies. So there's a sense where Jesus, when he takes on flesh, he takes on the cursedness of humanity for us. And he goes to the cross and he lets the curse work itself out logically. I am the cursed one who hangs on a tree. And the curse spends itself in such a way that by killing humanity and Jesus, the curse is gone. It's over. Then Jesus is Raised from the dead as the new humanity, uncursed. And he then gives the spirit from heaven into the people he calls to be his own. And this new spirit displaces the spirit of disobedience. And slowly he begins to inoculate us from this disease. And our life, our curse has run its course in him. Why does Jesus have to die Because there's a curse that needs to be broken. Third and finally, there's a debt to be paid, a curse to be broken. Third, there's a love to be perfected. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates, think about he shows, he, he puts it on a stage. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So to flip the logic of that sentence, Christ died for us so that the love of God could be demonstrated. That's where I get the idea of love perfected. There's always perfect love in the Godhead, but for us weak human beings, we need something different. You know, I think love is the most fundamental need of the human heart. And most, if not all, of our human relationships at some point are determined by conditional love, right? Like, you really got to do something for me. And we know partly when we're wanting to be loved by someone that we're wondering, are they in some way disappointed in me? Are they, are they sorry? Do they wish they had a go back? You can, wonder about a, about, you can wonder about a parent. Are they disappointed in me or a spouse? And... It's really hard. And, and what the cross does is it comes in and says, this is a totally perfected love. God is saying to the disciples of the hair, you're going to be following a Messiah, and there'll be a trail of blood behind that man. Because every time you look at him, I want you to know he will die for you, Peter, no matter what. While you are a sinner, he said, I still want Peter. No matter what, I will pay his debt. I will break the curse that he brought on and he will be mine. And your life, friend, it has to be founded on this unconditional love. You need this like your body needs oxygen. Your soul needs to know your maker loves you, period. There is only one religion, one truth, where this is displayed in such vivid imagery and its Christianity. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. A debt to be paid, a curse to be broken, a love to be perfected, and it all can be yours if you will open your heart to this Christ the Suffering Messiah, Lord, we thank you for our time together, in your Word, and I just want to acknowledge God that I, the cross is such a great, glorious mystery that we've we haven't begun to plumb its depths. But I pray you would apply it to this church, that we would be founded on the must, the necessarily of the suffering of the Son of God, amen.